my idea was to not get the usual suspects, but to have public debates. And what I wanted to do, my, my commitment, mainly because I was an educator, was to reanimate the public square. Hello and welcome to Confessions. I'm Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I talk to interesting and well-known guests to try and find out what it is that makes them tick. I'm going to try and drill down into their core beliefs to understand a bit better about who they are and what they're all about. Bearing her soul to me in the store this week is Claire Fox, Director of the Academy of Ideas and one of my co-panellists on Moral Maze. Claire, welcome to Confessions. Good to be here. Claire, Slightly slightly nerve-wracking. Is it? (laughs) It's been a while since I've been to Confession. (laughs) But presumably, with a name like Claire Regina Fox, which I ever found out, Regina being a reference to the Virgin Mary, you must have been to Confessions before. Oh, it's been a while, but no, confession was a very major part of my life growing up. So tell me a bit about that Catholic background, because I don't think people know much about that. Yeah, so I'm from an Irish Catholic background, probably fairly typical of the Irish immigrants who came over. Ended up living in North Wales because it was close enough to Liverpool and Holyhead to be able to get the boat um, <laughs> for my parents. So there was kind of a sense of we were kind of Irish, Welsh, God knows. Right. Um, but we were very definitely Catholics. Right. And, uh, yeah, I was a, I took the whole thing very seriously for a very long time, in fact. Oh, wow. um, so confession was a very important part of that because, you know, you had to... Sometimes you had to, when you're very small, you have to almost use your imagination to come up with some sins because you don't, <laughs> you don't want to appear to be too boring. <laughs> the worst thing is to go to confession, you've got nothing to confess. No, exactly. Like, oh, Who wants what, to be like I that? Be? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, you know, in some ways it taught me that confession is good for the soul and, I mean, maybe as a metaphor, but I... I did actually feel better having been to confession. And obviously, as I grew older, there was more to confess. But there was an opportunity to talk, I suppose, to somebody. Often you'd know the priest, but that confessional box as it was set up made you feel as though you were talking to somebody who was not just the priest that you know of your local parish. And so you did find yourself saying things or admitting things or talking through things. So it was a kind of... It had a kind of religious therapeutic aspect to it. And mass was a part of it too. Oh, mass was, you know, definitely weekly. More often than that, often, because I went to a Catholic comp and um, we had, you know, an, an additional mass every week. Um, I became one of the people who, as I was in my early teens, would help put those masses on. I thought I was very creative, you know, so I... I thoroughly you, enjoyed, you, you know, what, I'd what kind did of you like, do? because you, you, you know, you get a chance to do, we'll do a mass on the theme of war or something, you know, and I'd get my Wilfred Owen out and all this sort of thing, you know, and choose the hymns. I loved all that. I, I, I think I enjoyed the choreography of it and that was part of it. And yeah, and I took it very seriously. And my, my mother, you know, would go to mass, not every day, but she was a regular mass attender rather than just a weekly mass. So it was very core to us. And culturally meant a huge amount because it, it all our friends, all the families around us went to our school. So we had to travel to school as well. So, you know, we had to make the effort to go to a school I that see. wasn't the local school. I see, I see. So, there's a, you know, so you had, a, you had a sense of identity around Catholicism, definitely. And I'm presuming, with your background in the RCP, Revolutionary Communist Party, that at some point all of that dropped away. Yeah, but, I mean, it took me quite... You know, I don't want to say it took me. It wasn't an active 
attempt to get rid of it. But I mean, when I went to university, I was, you know, I was probably very naive, first person in the family to go to university. Not very many people locally went to university, I mean, it was not the done thing, really. And I was, I imagined myself to be incredibly uh, bright. <laughs> and then I turned up at university and realised I wasn't. I had no real sense of myself coming from an ordinary background or, you know, upper working class, whatever way you'd want to socially describe it, until I went to university. I mean, I right. thought going to university made me middle class and right. in a way it did, but then yeah. <laughs> when I got there, I realised I was a bit different. And I say that because I went as a Catholic, I, I, but I'd been thinking about politics because I'd been to Teze, which is a Catholic religious community. I'd actually won some prize and ended up going there. And so I'd been thinking about um, liberation theology. I sort of saw myself as some, you know, some bit of politics was there. My parents were political in as much as they read the newspapers, watched the TV, talked about current affairs all the time. My dad varied from being a kind of working class Tory. You went out canvassing for them to kind of being cynical about everyone. And my mum voted Labour solidly. You know, it was that kind of... But we talked about politics. So when I went to university, I was a Catholic, but looking round. I went to a Federation of Conservative Students meeting. Right, I mean, right, I had right. no sense I wasn't a Conservative, if you see what I mean. Right, right. I mean, I went to one meeting, I knew I wasn't. I walked out, I never yeah. went back. Yeah. I went to Labour Club meetings... Dollars dishwater. Right. Um, and I eventually actually joined the Socialist Workers' Party. And I did all that as a practising Catholic. Wow. We had a bit of a lefty priest, uh, Father Louis McRae, Father Mac. And he was, you know, open to talking about politics and religion all the time. So, you know, for a couple of years, I kind of happily, merrily and, combined and, these things. And liberation theology bleeds quite sort of naturally, I guess, into a sort of, you know, hard left type of position. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd, I'd gone and met all these... I'd, I'd actually met um, members of religious orders who'd kind of, you know, fought with the Sandinistas or been in South Africa, all this kind of thing. Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I was interested in Ireland because I was from Irish background and, you know, I remember very vividly my mother breaking down and weeping when Bloody Sunday happened. So I had some sense of, without really understanding it, but some sense of liberation and national sovereignty and people fighting for their freedom. And so, but I didn't have very much knowledge of the world. So it was when I went to Teza, which is in France, met people from all around the world and then sort of realised there was all these national liberation struggles happening, you know, and and that Catholics were involved in them. That was very exciting for me because I... I, I, I suddenly, well, it opened up new horizons. And, of course, it fed into a kind of revolutionary... I, I didn't feel as though being a revolutionary and being involved in religion was any contradiction at all. Now, I, 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 I am not religious now, but I know that those religious um, opportunities made me think. And, I mean, I always say, you know, I thought more in my RE lessons about morality than a lot of people would be exposed to. Because interestingly, you know, if you're told that, for example, abortion is a sin, or even sex before marriage, or, you know, contraception, which was, they might, I don't know whether they still say that even in Catholic Church, but, you know, these things were kind of quite morally challenging, you know, and they didn't say it to you, like, learn the catechism. I mean, I had teachers who, they were trying to, they were trying to win our hearts and minds, and ourselves, I suppose, but... 
which made me have to think from, you know, 13, 14. Um, I'm sorry to go on about this, but it's funny because my mum is um, in, a, in a home and I, I've just, um, so we've just sold the house to pay for it. And out of the attic came all of these old school books. And I, I was genuine. I mean, you know, I haven't gone through everything, but I kind of found these books of me at 12, 13, 14. And it was the RE lessons that really struck me where I'd be writing essays about quite profound things. That's not because I was profound, but because I was asked to consider those profound You've seen things. the essays. Have you got the it's essays? Yes, I've got the essays. <coughs> There's some fabulous ones. And do I mean, you see, there is do a you funny see today's, one. Clay, today, today's Claire Fox, do you see her in the essays that you read? I remember the idealism. <clears throat> and, I rem- and, and there is a very funny one about how um, I grew up to be a... A, a, a communist before I saw the error of my ways, which did make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> How the idealism of communism, and then I had to learn the hard lessons. But I was writing this when I was like thirteen, and imagining the future. So that's quite funny. Um, I can't see it. I, it's not. It's not. It's not unfamiliar to me. A bit goody two shoes, um, but. In the sense of kind of obviously aspiring to want to have a set of beliefs, and you still strike me as a a cultural Catholic. I think I think that's true. I mean, you know, I until only a few months ago, I was, you know, taking my mum to mass whenever I went home, which was every, you know, two or three weeks. Um, I, I, I'm and I I went to mass at the weekend without my mother because I get on very well with the priest near where my mother is. Do you take communion? I take communion. So there we are. <laughs> and she's just, I... She's like, by the way, this is really funny. So we're actually on a podcast <laughs> and she just said, I take communion. And then she put a finger <laughs> up to her mouth to say, whispering, I didn't just say that. The point I'm making is that I... These things have been hugely important to my family. And when my... You know, my dad died when he was in his 60s, which was very young, and you know, as it were, the Catholic community. You know, my mother, who 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 made a very funny comment to me um, when my dad died. It was very tragic because he died, you know, in three months of, of cancer, you know, it was sort of, and he was the, he was a life force and, and we all adored him and everything. Um, but my mum said to me, oh, you know, I really don't want to be a widow. And I think what she meant was that she remembered her own mother and my dad's mother and that, generation before her that when the husbands died they kind of took to wearing black and that was it my mum was mid-60s she didn't want that to be the case so we made a resolution that she wouldn't and to be to be fair although she's got alzheimer's now for the next 20 years i mean her early 80s she's you know off traveling around the place and you know went to america you know what i mean like so she we, we kind of stuck with that and i i just want to credit the local catholic church and people around it because she got a new lease of life um, and she helped actually build a new church in the local area with some um, money from my dad and things like that. Oh. Yeah. So let's take it on from here. So you go to university and then um, sort of left-wing politics, I presume that's the point where left-wing politics begins to play a more prominent role in your life. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I started to take myself and politics seriously largely because I knew I was dabbling and at Warwick in uh, university in those days every week there was a thousand people at union general meetings if you can imagine that every Thursday 
And I'd sit at the back in my first year and kind of watch these arguments and kind of realise that I wasn't sure what I thought about a lot of the issues. Um, and I, I started reading more. I started going to meetings and started thinking a bit. As I said, I got involved in the Socialist Workers' Party, you know, I, 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 without wishing to be sectarian, I found them crass and superficial and it wasn't really... But they did introduce me to revolutionary Marxism and um, even at the level of slogans, I kind of became familiar with that world. And then I got involved in Irish politics and anti-racist politics. And in both instances, I I didn't really agree with the, uh, the Socialist Workers' Party. I was more hardline on Ireland. I felt that they were, you know, they concentrated far too much on you know, the anti-Nazi league rather than serious anti-racism. And at the time in Coventry, um, there was, you know, there's a lot of racist attacks and I was very animated and outraged by that. So, um, and, and, then I, and then I stumbled across a, a group that nobody had heard of at, uh, in, in, in Warwick, weren't in Coventry, went on a demonstration and bought a, a newspaper called The Next Step, which was a revolutionary communist tendencies paper. Um, and I brought it back to Warwick, read it. I, re I remember reading it on the bus home and thinking, oh, they agree with everything I think. <laughs> you know, so, like all of these things. So know? for those people listening who are not uh, fully versed in, mm, the, in the complexity of hard left sort of, um, you know, politics, what, what's the, what would be the difference between the uh, SWP and the RCP? Oh, well, the, the differences are too difficult to explain now, but... Both are Trotskyist organisations. The Revolutionary Communist Party, as it became, was very small in comparison with the Socialist Workers' Party, which was very large at the time, relatively. Um, and the uh, Revolutionary Communist Party took theory very seriously, a huge amount of reading and encouragement to debate and discuss, and was trying to reimagine and reconceive of Marxism for that period and particularly rejected things like um, voting for the Labour Party or the state, uh, uh, taking over too much uh, role in people's lives, felt that the British tradition of kind of having sided with the Labour Party and the state and the welfare state was problematic. And then a myriad, a million other things, were particularly concerned with not being economistic and accommodate into the working class, but actually taking a lead when it came to things like oppression, fighting for Irish freedom or fighting racism or fighting for uh, in, in solidarity internationally. So there were distinctions, but it feels, doesn't it, like an age ago? Yeah. Because it was an age ago. I remember it, of course, vividly. And yet what listeners won't know was that you know, that this was a major preoccupation and if you were a student or if you were a young person in the in the eighties, well, I mean presumably before and but well into the eighties, everybody was involved in politics. Yeah, I was doing you know? And I was doing the same as you. I mean I was involved in the same things and and uh, for me, it was the other way around. I hadn't come from a religious background, but I was heading that right, way. Yeah, so yeah. We probably we probably Cross. swap crossed somewhere around on a selling the uh, selling socialist worker. But I'll tell you one thing that was interesting was that the socialist workers' party, you know, did try and kind of persuade <clears throat> me not to be religious. They did. And that, well, you know, there were attempts. At, well, you know, people who sort of say you can't be religious in revolution, which, which actually, of course, is true if you're a materialist, but. But one thing that the uh, RCP kind of didn't bother. <laughs> they kind of, well, what by which I mean, they took me seriously and I worked it out. I, I myself just uh, just drifted away from that tradition. Yeah. Uh -uh. 
And so you spent quite a long time, didn't you, in that that world? There was I don't know twenty years or so that you were you were in that world, and then and then obviously there's something else that's happened as well. So you know what I always think of the the Claire Fox puzzle is that um, you are both somebody that's on the left. I, I would you know, and you self describe uh, as on the left. Um, and yet there's a sort of this strong libertarian um, tendency that's happened. So that's and that's very different. To, that's a, that's a combination that's that's one that a lot of people don't no. don't completely get. Well, I think there's there's two strands. First of all, I was there. I was, you know, I was in the Revolutionary Communist Party. But when I say I had a life, I mean, I was also I had jobs. I was working. I was teaching for a long time. And in a, a, a set of circumstances that are kind of a bit peculiar, which I actually took a year off teaching to start a PhD to see if I got unpaid sabbatical, I got the opportunity to take over running Living Marxism and relaunching it as LM magazine. So the demise of... Uh, basically, the Revolutionary Communist Party folded. But at the end of the Cold War, it was decided that there was just no basis for this and that we'd just become some sect and that, that, that everybody could... You know, that we'd have a loose network, but that everybody kind of go away. But we had this successful... This was early 90s, though. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, I can't remember. No, but no, yes, no. it was, yeah. yeah. And uh, we had a successful magazine, Living Marxism, which was why, you know, I had a, I had a base. I mean, a reader base and all that sort of thing. And, a, and, and so on. So um, it was put... It was suggested, or we, a group of us thought, well, why don't we... Re and I kept saying, oh, we should relaunch as a current affairs magazine. And because I had this year off, I ended up being myself and, and somebody called Helena Goldberg decided that we'd do it because we felt that we had, you know, we were coming, we never worked, as it were, for this party. We weren't the inside crowd particularly, so we did it. And the first issue, we got sued for libel by ITN, which was probably one of the things that changed my life completely because what it meant was I felt responsibility for this magazine that I'd relaunched and then I'd and I, I wasn't named in the libel action as well, so I felt even worse. I felt like um, it doesn't matter about the libel action. When I say it doesn't matter, one can't discuss it in detail because of the libel action. But for three years, we had to fight a libel action. And the reason I tell you that is because the whole idea of this LM magazine was it, that it was time to go beyond left and right. And to get oh, together, see, that, was one, of the core that ideas. was one of the core ideas. Now, it, when we were saying beyond left and right, we were saying everything's thrown now by the collapse of Stalinism, politics being thrown up in the air, the emergence of new Labour, Blairism and, and, and kind of technocratic politics. Um, and we were, uh, you know, the libertarianism thing is mysterious to me because freedom has always animated my politics all the time through the RCP but people now associate Liberation freedom theology. exactly associate freedom with more now it's like they assume you're on the right and you believe in the free market whereas that wasn't really it's the kind of freedom of the individual to decide their destiny you know the personal sovereignty side so um lm magazine was very much animated by that and we carried on for 3 years and we had to raise a lot of money to to even to pay for a pro bono top barrister and um and we lost the libel case. But we didn't lose our credibility in as much as the judge concluded that we'd been fact, factually accurate. And although the case was all over the newspapers, I mean, some people will still, you know, say things that we never, ever argued. But the, the, but the, but actually, we retained a certain credibility. But what happened then was I was thrown into the public sphere. 
Do you remember, until then, I was a private individual, you know. I was in the RCP but I, and I was a teacher, but suddenly I was going out lobbying people and sort of, when I say lobbying, like going to book festivals and queuing up so I could talk to an author and say, would you sign our free speech petition? Right. And, it, and, 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 and then trying to get into the media to get the case known about. And through that, I, I became a bit of a public persona. And so what happened was the light was shone on my politics. It wasn't that my politics had all changed, just that nobody really knew. And part of my big thing was free speech because we'd been sued for libel. That was kind of... And we'd set ourselves up as a free speech magazine. One of the first things we organised, or I organised in that role, was a thing called um, Free Speech Wars, a big festival at the ICA. And it was kind of a model I've deployed for a long time since, which was my idea was to not get the usual suspects, but to have public debates. And what I wanted to do, my my commitment, mainly because I was an educator, was to reanimate the public square. And so free speech was my big thing. And I got picked up a few times, for example. I was asked to be a witness on the moral maze. That's my first, you know, they sort of said, oh, there's this woman who's doing this free speech thing. And I went on. I, I was a witness two or three times. And, and then they asked me to stand in on the panel. You know, so in a way, that was how I entered that world. So explain this. So you, it sounds like you were very early then in picking up this the thing that people talk about much more nowadays, that left and right have just become meaningless categories or we've, we've got to get beyond them and so forth. But I'm surprised that, that uh, you were thinking that in the sort of 90s because that's, cause not a lot of people were saying that sort of thing in the 90s. No. I think that everybody <clears throat> who had been involved in the left, I mean, people don't, maybe understand the profundity of the collapse of the Berlin Wall, which I had longed for for many a year. Um, because I was a Trotsky, I had no time. I knew that they had corrupted everything that I believed ideally would be come out of, uh, you know, any kind of communist societies. But what that meant was that when Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative or Francis Fukuyama said the end of history, it did feel like that because what it felt like then was this is it now. We've only well, this is the only system we can have, and I didn't believe that that was true. But I knew that there was no point just going on, you know what I mean. So I, in a way, you had to stop in your tracks and say, right, what 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 does politics mean now? If you're left wing progressive, whatever you are, you, know, you, you ever get tempted of... by the Blairite option? Oh no, that I have to say, never. <laughs> <laughs> At no point. Um, they were doing something different, but everything that they were doing, I hated. So, no, 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 that was never my... But I think that they did also symbolise that politics was changing. And so you felt that, well, now, you know, these kind of, like, clear distinctions left and right. And also, in the midst of all of that, of course, we'd had, in this country, the defeat of the miners' strike. You could see that kind of working-class resistance and politics basically taking a massive bashing. It wasn't just the minor strike, but effectively the traditional left-right, uh, you know, even bosses, workers, uh, all these kind of uh, um, um, dichotomies were just over. And but so I was, you I was just so I took a different reaction oh, right, to the yeah. time. So, I mean, I was just, you know, the, the minor strike, this was Scargill versus Thatcher, you know. So it was, yeah. it, 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 it had sort of, it polarised left-right to me. It made it sharper yes. to me. Oh, no, well, it did. Oh, no, I mean, the minor strike was very important for my politics. Although, in fact, um, the Revolutionary Communist Party were arguing that there should have been a ballot for it to be democratic, which got us some stick at the time from some people on the left. But a lot of miners agreed with us, as it happens, 
to the left, you know, because they felt that Scargill was not, anyway, not winning the arguments internally in the in the union. But that's one side. What I mean is after the defeat of the strike, right, right. there was a demoralised atmosphere. And obviously the atmosphere was such that the trade unions kind of can't finish, you know. You know what I mean? And felt people felt like they'd been sold out. And actually partly, by the way, um, you know, because they never kind of admitted to being defeated, but everybody knew. And then, of course, there was all sorts of things happening. You know, the the war in Ireland was it, it, that was obviously kind of coming to an end, but not necessarily in a way that was going to lead to the United Ireland that many people had fought for, or or, or, or what have you. So you felt that, or, and and a lot of um, the political drivers around liberation struggles around the world were being replaced in a rather unpleasant way. I mean, if you look at the Middle East, you know that, or or, or in Africa, things that had. Uh, it was politics that animated freedom struggles. And they were being replaced, for example, in the Middle East, often by religion, like by the rise of radical Islam. And so things were getting very complicated. International relations would change because the Cold War had also animated the West and the Western establishment because they could always say, well, at least we're not like them. And they always had an enemy. And then without an enemy, they didn't have an enemy. So everyone was disorientated. And I was just determined to try and find a way of having an open enough conversation to try and understand the world and come out of it with some progressive politics at the end. So you and I are both on the moral maze. Um, are you are you a moral thinker or a political thinker? Well, oh, I don't know what kind of thinker I am, but I do try and think morally as well as politically. But I do think they're quite similar. But what I think people think political thinking is is policy thinking and so I'm not a policy wonk and so when people say oh you know that they're involved in politics they're often involved in the in the how to run the administration society, the administration now of course you know now a middle-aged woman not like the idealistic student I was so it's not that I don't understand that people have to run things and even in my brief uh, you know, I had a, a period when I was elected as a student union full-time officer <laughs> mid my career, to my to everyone's surprise, as a Revolutionary Communist Party person, and then I suddenly had to run the bar, run the account, <laughs> run the accounts. And I couldn't just stand up and make inspiring speeches. You know what I mean? I had, to, I had staff, so you know, I I I've kind of, and you know, now I run I run the Academy of Ideas. I have staff. I have rent. I have to pay salaries. I I have to raise money. I have to run a mini business. Capitalist no running about dog. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I'm definitely more more in the ideas front. And I think that that I think that politics without that kind of moral thinking can make some terrible errors. I understand it, but... And, and so if we're going to go to the... If we're going to sort of move over to the moral side, because I've heard your political sort of narrative, which is... So is there a sort of core Claire Fox sort of animating moral sort of engine that's going on where there's some really absolutely key sort of things that are morally that are, that are crucial to you? So I think that treating each and every human being as if they are myself, i.e. respecting their moral autonomy, is one of my key issues. And that's where the freedom... You nearly said, love your neighbour as yourself. Exactly, and I was conscious that it's of that ill. <clears throat> I, I, actually, you don't have to love them, but, but understanding that they are moral beings. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, having respect for humanity. 
So, you know, if you want them a humanist in that sense. Um, and that's where the freedom comes from, knowing that, allowing people to have control of their destiny. That, that personal sovereignty, that word, but, you know, that they are the sovereign of their lives. That seems to me to be one of the key changes historically that's happened, which was that we were determined by outside forces, we were told, and, uh, you know, once a surf, always a surf, and you knew your place and all the rest of it. And that recognition that emerged broadly around the Enlightenment, but the Renaissance and the Enlightenment time, which was that people and everyone, and then eventually we realised, you know, you could be the servant or the master or the uh, what have you, everyone could equally think morally. That's one of my driving forces. And I also think that I'm an old-fashioned educator. I think having been a teacher, I chose to be a teacher, obviously. I mean, I, I taught in further education, but that that sort of idea of of, of pass it on, um, um, largely because I, I, I just know that if I hadn't had teachers... In a, in a, in what wasn't a very good school had been a secondary modern went to a comp. Teachers who introduced me to the best that's known and thought that changed my life. I still get, you know, a, a gulp in my throat thinking of that, and I try and do the same. When you talk about the liberation of the individual, it, one of the ways in which we're often set off against each other on more maze is that you would be a more individualist type of thinker, and I'd be more a communitarian type of thinker. Um, is there a is there a bit of you that 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 feels anxious about the way in which uh, individualism, contemporary individualism, is also um, a sort of alibi for I don't know a sort of uh, adjacent to a sort of self absorption or uh, the the sort of the problems you know people cut off loneliness people cut off with community I mean you talk very you know, moving the about North Wales community, Catholic community in North Wales. So just, uh, you know. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think there is a balancing act there and I'm conscious of it. So I am a great critic of the kind of narcissistic me, me, me aspects of contemporary society. And I think that that self-absorption and turning in on oneself is completely unhelpful. I think that sometimes people misunderstand individualism because, and of course it can go either way, but... For me, the importance of stressing the individual is because so often it's the group think or the kind of collective which can be told to kind of pipe down, you don't matter. You know, we're doing it for the best interests of society, so you're irrelevant. And because I've already said that one of the big animating ideas I've got is everyone being seen as an individual, autonomous being, and respecting that, I get anxious that some of the more communitarian side, I mean, not so much communitarian, but you know, like nudge, you know, it's kind of like you treat everybody as kind of like as though they're kind of things to be done to, acted upon and moved around, you know, like like they don't count. It also strikes me that the collective needs to be full of strong individuals. You know, there's no, otherwise it's just a blob. And so, of course, I still believe that, um, you know, that, that we won't, that one would never change anything historically. It was just like one person here and one person, you know, but it's the coming together of those independent, morally autonomous agents that makes history change. That's that's what I think. But I'd also associate you with being something of a critic of the ways in which the 
autonomous individual can self-define simply through an act of will. I'm thinking of you know gender type of uh, uh, arguments that we're having at the moment. Is that a fair thing? Oh, that's absolutely fair. I mean, I, <clears throat> the thing about self-definition is the thing about individual consciousness and 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 being is is that you become someone. You know, the struggle of life is to make create yourself in a way, and so that sounds as though I'm going to say you know so now I can declare gender at any time but when I say I mean morally don't I and usually in reference to society so I don't think that's why I'm such a critic of identity politics you know I don't think that it's helpful for me to say well you know you can know that I'm Irish you can you can find out lots of things about me from that or Welsh or which hat I choose to wear um but to sort of say that explains me finishes me off before I've started and also gives me no responsibility for what I have to do now and what I have to do next and the becoming who I want to be, which is, I consider, an ongoing um, issue. I'm not, I'm not nowhere near where I want to be. Um, and so I think that's... Otherwise, you're just passive and you're a kind of at the receiving end of things that are not your responsibility, right? So that's one side of it. The Gender Recognition Act at the moment is suggesting self-ID, which it does strike me as being much more of a sense of entitlement, which is a demand that you that I tell you who I am and you must treat me. And that's but isn't not that what I'm part, talking wouldn't about. Wouldn't that grow naturally out of your... <coughs> about your celebration of the sovereign nature of the individual? No, not just by demanding. I mean, I could say I'm a great thinker and it wouldn't make it true. And I demand you... You know, me, 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 right? You must act... Now, this is very different, by the way, and um, of course it is, which is is that there are people who uh, want to change their gender. And I think that the arrangements through which, you know, living in a particular gender for two years and some of these things are are perfectly serious and do not discriminate and are a reasonable way to treat people with respect. And I... And indeed, if anyone even said to me, you know, call me Z or... You know, I know I was John last week, but I'm Janet now. Call me Janet. I wouldn't go John just for the sake of yeah, being yeah. mean. Yeah. But to turn public life on its head on the basis of demands of what actually has not become a group of individuals, but has become a group think demand, I think is wholly dangerous. So and I, I actually am a live, let live. I don't care how people, I don't care how people describe themselves or live. I don't care about their sexual preferences and I don't care. I'm very liberal on that front. Um, they have to make their own moral choices and, uh, and and one can make, you know, and I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm more than happy with that. But that's different than reorganising society around a recognition of, I want you to tell me now that this is what I am and so on and so forth, right? There's no discrimination going on, by the way, in the midst of this. And and, and I think that, that to try and deny biology in the midst of a liberation discussion really is um, far-fetched. But then, well, that doesn't mean that there aren't complicated matters around people's identity that one wouldn't want to be both sensitive, kind about, and in fact, uh, uh, liberal about. I just want to just I want to plug this question, not the question about gender, but I want to plug this question about the relationship between the individual and the community. Just just one more time, because we have a we have a 
say a millennial generation now growing up that's grown up with um, a strong sense of individual rights and individual place in the world. And yet one of the things that you've been a critic of is, or seem to be a critic of, is this particular generation of snowflakes and all the rest of it and so forth. Um, so I'm just trying to work out, I'm trying to place those two things together, Claire. Do you see what I'm trying yeah, to no, do? Yeah, I, no, I, I can entirely. So I've just written something on narcissism, trying exactly to understand this. Because, so if I can... If I can use it an, an analogy, you know, you're 14 and you read a book and that book, it might be a novel, it might be a historical book, but you take into you new information, new ideas, your imagination spots, it makes you a different person. You are, you are a different person as a consequence. And then you want to share that with everyone you go and talk, tell people. That is uh, kind of the individual growing and burgeoning and I don't want... And I want people to be able to experiment in living and thought and what they read and discussions they have as they grow up and into adulthood, as they develop it, their individual personality. This is you, the educator, isn't this it? This is me, the educator. At the moment, we are told to respect young people because they're young, which is kind of an accident of their birth date and won't last. Um, and also that when they say you must listen to me you know rather than it being um something where they're using the outside world as a resource to develop themselves it's much more inwardly focusing and it's being encouraged that way and we are told that um we aren't to criticize young people or it will damage their self-esteem whereas i actually think we owe it to young people to be critical uh, not cruel, and to say, no, you're wrong or or, or you could improve or what have you. Um, not to be told to not do that because what would we know or that we'd betray the generation. I mean, if you feel that you know something and that young uh, uh, some young people are doing something wrong, I think you have an obligation to say, look, you're young and I can tell you I haven't been around a bit. They don't have to accept it, but I think we should have the courage to do it. And there is a tension at the moment. So one of the things about the snowflake generation, which is a phrase that I'm blamed for, but which is a derogatory and unpleasant phrase, I understand that, but I do fear that young people are being overly mollycoddled and not allowed to develop their individual resilience and so on because we're overprotecting them as a group on the basis of protecting them as individuals from any possible hurt or harm. Except I, I also think, where I... I, I... I look two ways on this because I I feel a bit of that. But I also, having young kids myself, I think, goodness gracious me, I wouldn't want to grow up with the social media stuff, with the way in which this is, you know, clearly the bullying, the way in which it's harmful to social identity, uh, to your own identity and your self-worth and self-respect. and uh, But also, we also live in a sort of febrile political environment, uh, Brexit and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, so you're getting your battle of ideas, aren't you? Well, it's not really a battle of ideas, is it? But, but just on the young people in social media, I mean, I'll often hear, and many young people will say, you know, you, you know, we, we're a uniquely uh, suffering generation because you didn't have the, you know, you didn't have Facebook or social media. And obviously these are new challenges, but they're not uniquely suffering. I mean, and even internationally, you know, you do think, come on. Um, but actually we've had a few... Uh, debates recently with teenagers and they I've been surprised at them sort of saying yeah you know actually we're you know 
people talk about cyberbullying, but we can't, I mean, in other words, people play the game. They kind of know that you can say cyberbullying, but really it's a row. So it's not just, and also, anyway, these are just words, and you have to say, right, this is the world that you now live in, where people can be horrible to you and you don't get enough likes on, on Instagram, right? And I'm now, as an adult, going to tell you that is the least important aspect of life and you shouldn't worry about it. Not accommodate to it and overprotect people. That's sort of what I'm saying. The, the, the different point you've raised, which is, that we're bringing young people into a, into a moment historically of febrile, vicious uh, um, division, um, is is very troubling to me. And but but what I suppose one could say is is that it's a it's a mixture of two things. Brexit in this country happens to be the moment which is for once liberated politics. And 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 remember, most young people, younger than you and I, were reared in a there is no alternative, this is it. And the status quo prevailed. Now everybody knows that this isn't it. It might be that they're confused and discombobulated because everything's thrown up in the, work, in the air and it's a bit scary because you know what the future's like. But in a way, that's also quite refreshing because you get a chance now you get a chance to shape things you realize politics isn't stuck that you yourself and you and your colleagues and you and your mates you and your peers can actually be the ones that change the world the world the way you want it to whereas we've basically been told for 25 years or like so no don't, don't worry you know you you, well, you go off and live your... sort of said that yeah. didn't he and also while you're over there doing that we'll kind of go and tinker over here and of course that then by the way led to identity politics people weren't satisfied with that so they looked to where the means of finding meaning not necessarily uh, progressive ones, in my view. Yeah, so I, 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 I know it's febrile, and I want to take it down a notch or two. And God knows it's not the battle of ideas when people are just screaming it past each other from their echo chambers on on Facebook. But on the other hand, there are very exciting aspects of this, and I think so many millions of people felt that moment, particularly when Brexit happened that um, I think that the democracy has been shaken up in a positive way. And so I'm, I'm generally quite optimistic, despite everything. Yeah, you're an optimist rather than a pessimist, aren't you? I am, I think. I, I, because I believe in people. I mean, I don't want to be... I mean, there is a danger of being uh, uh, wide-eyed and naive. Um, but I think I look for what the possible is. And, you know, I don't know if you work with people like this, but there are times over the years that I've worked with people who know... You know, they'll come up to you and say, oh, we've got a problem with this. And they'll tell you the problem endlessly. And I just think, yeah, all right, moving on. And there are people you work with who come up and they say, we've got a problem with this. So what I've thought is we'll work this out, i.e. they're problem solvers. And I, it's such a joy. You know, you just think, yes, oh, yes, working yes, with yes, someone yes, yes, yes. who can see how, give it a go. And I want to be that person, not the whinger. I whinge all the time, but I try not to and try and be the other person. <laughs> Claire Fox, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. <laughs>